Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Dispatches from Ukraine with Holly McKay. Today, Holly's going to be answering some questions that were posted on the internet. How are you today, Holly? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? Quite, quite good. Okay. So, um, the first set of questions or first block of questions of, of, of people from that are asking you are, they're asking about the morale of Ukrainians. Um, Basically, so I got a question here from 41 Fat Boy that basically says, what's the general feeling among men who have been forbidden to leave the country? Is morale suffering because of what is essentially conscription? Is there any animosity from the Ukrainian soldiers towards those who would rather leave? Um, I think, you know, generally speaking, men in Ukraine are, are very aware of their responsibility and, and very willing to fight for their country or do whatever is necessary. And that's not always necessarily being a fighter, but joining, um, you know, being a volunteer or joining a territorial defense forces or just being available for conscription. You know, people can use different skills, whether it be a medic, whether it be a driver, whether it be someone who maybe cleans the guns or cooks the food. So there are a lot of very pivotal roles that people here can play that aren't necessarily being, you know, out on the front line. You can man a checkpoint. There, there are just so many things. And I think men are just everywhere, just very willing and want to take on this kind of responsibility. Um, of course, there are people who don't see themselves as, you know, military types that have tried to leave or wanted to leave. or And there certainly is that. But I think, um, you know, it is important to remember that there are many roles that, that are required of uh, people and that's why they need to stay. And I think most are willing to take that on. And, and, you know, one, one friend of mine here, she said to me, you know, it, it, she was very upset with, with certain people she knew that were trying to leave certain men that were trying to, you know, pay their way out or pay bribe money or whatever it may be. And she said, you know, when she, this is over and she goes back to, into dating, it's really going to, matter to her where where the the men were during this time you know if she finds out that they went to Poland or that they were you know hiding in a house somewhere or or weren't sort of playing an active role in protecting their country then that is a big um that's a big red flag for her and I think there probably will be a lot of women that will follow in in her lead on that interesting okay um Question on uh, more about welfare. Um, how are the young children handling the situation? I think it's an incredibly difficult thing. I think, um, you know, we're looking at you know, probably at least a million, a million and a half children that have already left the country and then definitely hundreds of thousands, if not millions, that are displaced within the country Um but that, you know, it still leaves a lot, many more million of children that are here and having to live through this war and, and knowing that there really aren't too many safe places to be. And it's, it's really, um, you know, I can't even begin to imagine, you know, what that sort of must be like for, for children, um, to kind of have to, to have their lives upended so quickly. And I think each child really deals with that in their own way. Um, I've certainly seen children who, you know, I was in a medical tent of, of evacuees and, and there was a mother that was very traumatized and she had a, a little toddler and the toddler just spent the entire hour, you know, unpacking the yoga boxes and then repacking them. And she thought that was the funnest, most delightful thing in the world. So, you know, she seemed to be, to be coping with it. Um, but then you'll meet other children that are sort of the same age, around five or six, that are just absolutely a mess. They're in tears. They don't know when they'll see their dad again. You know, the mother is obviously extremely distressed and, and it's incredibly, um, upsetting and confusing situation. So I think, 
you know, we don't look at the psychological impact usually in the middle of the firestorm because really right now the war is, is, is just taking off and it's, it is all about survival, but, but certainly the aftermath um, is going to be pretty horrific, I would think. Okay. Um, last question on, on the morale side. Um, what's the expectation of Ukrainians of what will happen if Russian troops arrive in Kiev? I think at this point, um, you know, you, Ukrainians are very strong in believing that their, their armed forces are going to be able to, to, to hold out Ukraine, um, at least from the ground. Um, they're very determined that however long this war goes on for that Ukraine will win, that they will not live under Russian occupation. Um, so they certainly have a very strong morale and, and willpower in that. But I'm sure there is certainly a lot of fear that, that comes with that. Um, a lot of the unknowns, a lot of, um, it's it just very unclear when, if, how, Russians will try to take the capital if they will adopt a similar approach as they have in other cities like Kharkiv and, and Mariupol, where they pretty much just decimated those areas and um, and really, you know, instilled a, a policy of fear where you just terrorize a population to the point of starvation. It's cold. They're hungry. There's no water. There's no electricity. There's no food. And then they feel at some point that the Russian occupiers come in and they feel that this is their only chance of, of some sort of survival is this, you know, quasi aid that the Russians basically probably stole from the local grocery store. Um, and that is sort of their way to co-opt them when people are absolutely desperate. So I think it's, it, there's just a lot of fear and a lot of unknown. And right now it really just comes down to just putting faith into the military sources and just hoping and praying for the best because at this point um, they know that they aren't any match to the Russians in terms of air power, but certainly on the ground, uh, you know, I think Ukrainians are absolutely doing their best to hold out, but it's an incredibly difficult task and you're already seeing a lot of the, the smaller cities around Kiev in the Kiev Oblast that have fallen to the Russians. Okay. Well, let's turn to the war fighting. Then, uh, uh, there's, uh, one question from a, uh, Don Juan Fit, uh, that says, yeah. haven't heard much reporting about the Ukrainian army combat actions, any reports of Ukrainian armored units in contact with Russia troops, or the majority of engagements from the Ukrainian side, mostly insurgency type operations. Uh, sorry, could you repeat that a little bit? There's a lot of questions in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the, the main question is, uh, uh, from that is uh, what types of engagements are the uh, Ukrainians doing in, in, in terms of their engagements with the Russians? It, it, the, the, this person it really just dep- goes. Yeah, it depends place by place. There's a lot of, you know, there's a, it, you know, this is a very conventional war. This is a very 20th century war being fought in the 21st century, if you will. So there isn't really huge amounts of guerrilla tactics or things like that. It's just, it's a very conventional urban warfare or urban warfare really so you're looking at at shootouts you're looking at you know um obviously russians have a lot of air power so you're looking at at air raids you're looking at you know shooting missiles down with stingers and javelins um from the sky and you're sort of looking at that sort of big weaponry you've got tanks you've got big um guns you've got you know sandbag check 
points and front lines and and so it is it is a very um sort of urban conventional in that sense um so that sort of is the main tactic is you just got to be a lot of big weapons that are being used there isn't really um there isn't really sort of a lot of squirrely behavior if you will it's very um it's very kinetic and it's very um you can hear it everywhere you go you hear it all day in the distance so um you definitely know that there is a is a lot of uh a lot of action kind of going on and just really, I think, you know, we obviously hear the big artillery, but, but there also just is a lot of, um, you know, shootouts and attempts to destroy tanks and, and sort of shooting at the enemy from, from various positions and rooftops and, and that kind of thing as well. So, um, it's a, it's a very messy, it's a very messy war. Okay. Very good. Um, so there were a number of questions asking whether or not you've seen or met any international volunteers that have come to fight with the Ukraine. Um, I haven't, I, I believe, you know, I'm told that there are several thousand. Um, I haven't met any really face to face that are actually doing the fighting. It's really only people that I've heard about, um, you know, through other mutual friends and things that are supposedly here. I haven't sort of come across any, um, you know, on a checkpoint, but mind you, Ukraine certainly keeps the military side of it pretty, uh, pretty obscure. So generally you're only really seeing territorial defenses. And then yesterday I saw some of the, the military that were sort of changing positions in Irpin, um, and were kind of hanging out there for a while and bringing in weaponry and, and bringing in RPGs and things, but they were very strict that I wasn't allowed to photograph them or, you know, kind of give away anything in that sense. So um, they're sort of keeping the, the military side of it a lot more concealed than they are, say, the territorial defenses, which are the civilians who who have sort of trained and, and learned to take up arms as well. Um, and then you also have another faction, which are the volunteers, which are usually ex-military. So they've they're already well trained, but they've retired and now they're sort of back just as volunteers and, and not, um, obviously taking a salary or, or anything like that. So you sort of have those three, three major components of, of different fighting units there. But, but foreigners, I, yeah, I, I'm told they're there. I haven't come across any fighting. The only ones I've really seen, um, there's foreigners that are doing different, uh, sort of medical work. I, I met someone yesterday, um, a San Francisco tech person, CEO of some big companies who, um, was sort of helping carry a lot of the injured and the evacuees over that Opian bridge. And he was sort of helping with a medical unit there. And, and they seemed very grateful to have him, um, just to kind of be there as, a, as an extra body that was sort of helping to, to carry large, um, you know, to carry the stretches. So, and then I've sort of met other people that I've run into that are generally doing different medic work, but, but even they've sort of said to me that, um, you know, isn't really, they're not really needed to be here. That, that isn't the issue. There are plenty of doctors. There are plenty of medics. There are plenty of nurses. You know, there's all sorts of, um, medical professionals that are already here that are Ukrainian. What they really need is supplies. So I think that's an important point to stress is that it's not really, I don't think it's the best money spent for an NGO to, to fly out. Um, you know, a bunch of people or, you know, some GoFundMe campaign to raise money for someone to come into a war zone when the professionals are here. And a lot of the time, especially in Kiev, they don't have a huge amount to do yet. And hopefully they won't, but they really need, they need the supplies. So that, that is the important part. Okay. Very good. Well, that's interesting information, actually. Um, 
Uh, last question having to do with war fighting is several people are asking questions about the Russians and, um, yeah. uh, are they, are they deserting? Are they being captured? Are they staying with their army? Has anybody spoken to any Russian POWs and what do they have to say? You know, I've, I've put in requests to do that so far. It sort of hasn't come to fruition, but, um, but the, the, you know, the POWs are, there are websites that the Ukrainians have released videos and photos and identities of a lot of the POWs. Um, and they, you know, different testimonies. And I've certainly talked to a lot of different people that have captured the Russians and, and sort of interrogated them. And, and I think perhaps in the beginning, um, the, the situation was that a lot of them seemed confused. They weren't really unsure or, but, you know, we're looking at going into the third week of this war now, and I, I think that that excuse can no longer stand. You know, if you're still here and you're still fighting and shooting at people, you are very well aware of what you're doing. Um, and that, that really excuse, it doesn't fly. Um, you're here, obviously, waging war in a country that is not yours. And I, I don't see that that excuse um you know, having any sort of validity that it may have had in, in those first few days. Okay. All right. So, um, there are several questions on, uh, relief funds and efforts, uh, mostly having to do with, uh, wondering if relief funds that are being collected are getting to the right places and also what organizations are the most impactful to support from Americans to help the Ukrainian people. Yeah, I, I can't really speak to whether money is going to the right places. It's just not, you know, I'm a one man band here, really. I, I, I can't really speak to that. Um, I certainly haven't, I haven't seen any mass evidence of, you know, any sort of large scale corruption, but I, you know, I, the, I, I would always just in, say to people to trust the, the major NGOs that really already have a staff built up. You know, I'm a big fan of the International, um, Committee of the Red Cross. I, I, us, I, I can't even speak today. Um, so I'm a big fan of them. I'm a big fan of, you know, Norwegian Refugee Council. I've worked with them in the past on stories and they, they've always sort of seemed to be really in the ground and very deep. Um, and then, you know, really local NGOs. And there are just so many of them. And I, um, Pirogov Volunteer Mobile Hospital is one that I, I support. They do a lot of good work and I really encourage people to, to try to donate locally wherever possible or to sort of an established organization because that way you do know that there is accountability into where the funds are going. And certainly Ukrainian people are really at a point where they're just so desperate to save their country that I, I can't really foresee anybody taking large sums of money for themselves. I mean, what are you going to spend it on? There's, there's nothing here. So I think, um, I certainly, again, would rather see people do that than sort of go to some, some GoFundMe campaign of, of someone from the U.S. who's trying to do X, Y, Z and, and want some money for a plane ticket and a hotel and all this sort of stuff. I, I think that is really a waste of, 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 um, of good, generous people's money. And, and that's probably, um, you know, instead of buying somebody's plane ticket, you know, being able to put money straight into the pocket of, of someone who is, who is really wounded or of course that's important to you here on the ground, um, is something that, that each individual can do to help. Okay. All right. So let's switch to some of the larger picture questions that were asked of you on the internet this week. Um, the first one of, which is a very long question, but I'll summarize into the gist of it is the, the person is asking 
given that there were claims, counterclaims, and uh, prior to the invasion that are justified, ridiculous, some claims are good, not, how big was or is this problem really? And why couldn't diplomacy work to have solved these issues before the invasion? Well, you know, diplomacy only goes so far. And I think we can all look at hindsight and different things. Um, you know, I, I, President Zelensky certainly is being, um, you know, incredible leader during this point. But, but there are some critics who will say that he's inexperienced given the fact that he wasn't a politician. He didn't really sort of make uh, the concessions that could have possibly prevented this beforehand, you know, statements such as, um, Ukraine won't join NATO or, you know, things like that, that, that some analysts believe, um, perhaps sort of appeased, uh, Putin and, and, you know, this war may have not happened and just a few kind of moves that were made, um, that, that some people sort of say came down to in taking a very strong di- diplomatic approach, but, but not, um, not really understanding, I guess, the mindset of who he was dealing with and, and sort of the scale of the problem. Um, but of course, right now, you know, those sort of things are further from, from being on the table than they were perhaps previously. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for all of us to wrap our heads around how something like this can still happen and how, all diplomatic channels can absolutely fail. And, and I think that, you know, a lot is going to be studied about this war and how it came to be. And I don't necessarily know that it will make any difference going forward, but I, I do think that, um, you know, unfortunately we all want diplomatic solutions, but sometimes, you know, a military solution is what we get and what we have to work with. Okay. All right. So, um, yeah, there does that, it's water under the bridge and we have to move forward at this yeah. point. So the next question has to do with, uh, this is a question by a, a user named Trekking Hope, uh, which says, uh, I'm baffled by the fighter jet issue. Have you heard anyone considering having uh, a, a solution to this? They just don't understand uh, the idea and, and that the jets are available, to, but the policy is timid and about getting them where they need to go. Yeah, I think that, you know, Poland obviously wanted to give some of the jets that it, it was probably ready to retire anyway to Ukraine, the MiGs, but the U.S. shot that down. And I think the U.S. is, is very scared of, of um, you know, this proliferating into a much broader war across Europe that will obviously implicate NATO and drag, you know, the, by, by, you know, Article 5, dra- drag the U.S. into that. And you're obviously dealing with nuclear powers at this point. So there is a lot um, to be considered. But I think at the same time, the way that Ukrainians see it is, well, you know, this already is a big war. This isn't just about Ukraine. This is about, um, you know, this is about, you know, we could see there were strikes this morning in, in Lviv, which is, is very close to the Polish border. And whether or not, you know, that is a warning to, to Poland who, who wanted to give the fighter jets over. So you're already looking at a lot of provocation happening from Russia and, and Ukrainians will argue that, that this already does involve NATO. This does involve, um, Europe already, whether how much we try to sit it out or not. Um, and certainly we can look at history and say that the U.S. is, is uh, you know, going back to the Second World War when the U.S. really tried to sit that out until Pearl Harbor was struck. So it's just very hard to to kind of know. And I think Russia already sees the way that the West is giving many weapons to um, to Ukraine 
and you know that that to them is already sort of an act of war and aggression so i don't know necessarily how much difference it would make in the calculation for fighter jets to be added to the picture um but the us is certainly playing an incredibly um sort of overcautious approach in that and has, has pretty much at this point um knocked that down okay so basically there's really no sense what a, an end game solution looks like at this point um last question um, from, uh, H corn, I can't pronounce the name. Um, but, uh, this question is, goes like this, Holly, I've been amazed that there are not more deaths in these bombings, particularly the maternity hospital. Is that because they have already fled or is it because there is a basement and they are able to take cover? I think it's a combination the look to be obliterated. Yeah. It's a combination. It's usually people are in the basement or they've already fled, but generally they're in the basement or there are still um, a lot of injuries that come from it. And and if you look at the maternity hospital, um, Russia can kind of lie all day and say that, um, you know, if you look at that one and they can say, oh, you know, we did, we don't deliberately target it. And, and certainly they do have a disregard for civilian life, but there's also seems to be a very strong willingness to target civilian life. And, and if you look at that particular maternity hospital that was hit in Mariupol, um, hours before that, the Kremlin foreign ministry spokeswoman was sort of saying that, that the, uh, that the Ukrainians were housing, you know, military operations in hospitals. And then hours later, that hospital was struck. And you can see from the pictures that there were no military people in that hospital. That was all women and children and doctors that were left bloodied and, and dead and, and injured. And yet the Kremlin plays this absolutely loon, just baffling game of propaganda. Um, so it was clear sort of by that statement that they were very ready to target hospitals and with this sort of false claim of them being military bases. Um, and it's unfortunate that many of the Russian people still believe that nonsense. Um, I talk to people here all the time, people that have fled, people that have been shot, people that have been wounded, people that are sending pictures of their burned down house and their, um, you know, the bullet wound through their leg to their relatives in Russia who still turn around and say that, this is not true. This is a lie. This is not happening. And it's just, it's crazy to think in the 21st century, uh, you can be waging a war on your neighbor and yet people in your country are so oblivious um, and so brainwashed by the propaganda that they still believe that this isn't possibly happening. Um, yeah. Hey, a follow up to that, to that statement. So I, I, I wrote about that uh in in terms of that denial that seems to be coming back from Russia and somebody commented to me that given that it is you know a 10 to 15 year prison sentence to um acknowledge the war uh that is it possible that Russians are basically coming back and are afraid to acknowledge what they see I don't think so. I mean, I'm sure there are cases like that, but I think on the whole, there are a lot of people who just genuinely don't believe that this is happening. That are genuinely, you know, that their only information they're getting is from the state controlled propaganda media and, um, they've really bought into it. And mind you, this has been a long game for Russia. This isn't a new thing. They've been trying to sort of instill this idea of, of, um, of needing to liberate Ukraine from a Nazi regime for a while now. This has been a very sort of meticulously planned, um, machine. Okay. All right. Well, that, I think that concludes this episode of Dispatches from Ukraine. So thank you, Holly. And, um, 
stay safe and we'll talk to you again soon. Yes, we'll talk in a few more days. Thank you again and thank you all for your support.